All right, yeah, we're going to be in Mark 6 or 7. I'm Terrell. Uh, me and Rome met at SFA. Um, man, like six years ago now. Uh, yeah, so uh, went to SFA for three years. Actually, it'll be nine years to get through college, undergrad. Spent the last three of that. Yeah, so keep on. Hey, if you're on the five, six, seven, it's cool. It's all good. Um, but yeah, uh, just grown to love this town, love that campus. Um, finished my degree there. Uh, met just the closest friends that I have in the world, Roman being one of them, my wife being one of them at SFA. Um, so happy to be back here. Uh, haven't been up here in a while, so I'm excited. Let's do Mark 6. We're going to start in verse 7. And yeah, let's just roll with it. Let's just see what happens. Um, I'm going to read a little chunk. We'll talk about it. I'm going to read another bit and we'll talk about that. And it's 7.50. Man, y'all are going to be out by 9 o'clock for sure. For sure. Okay, let's go. Um, and he, being Jesus, called the 12, those being his disciples, and he began to send them out two by two. He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them. So, um, the, uh, Jesus has been going along, uh, and, and specifically in Mark, you're seeing him do a couple things kind of everywhere he goes. You're seeing him cast out demons, and you're seeing him heal the sick. Uh, and in doing that, he is also preaching about the kingdom of God that is coming. Uh, so Mark, like Roman has been saying, Mark is specific in what he wants you to see about Jesus. Uh, he wants you to see that Jesus is depicting himself as this coming king who is coming to restore the earth to back to, to what it should be um, and to do away with all of the things at work against humanity, to recreate the earth. That's the king. That's what Jesus is coming to do. That's what Messiah, and it's really what the Jews expected from their Messiah, this figure who comes in and exercises a just right rule over everything that has gone wrong, corrupt rulers, Corruption in the body by physical defilements. Corruption in the spiritual realm by corrupt spiritual beings. He's this figure that's going to come and set, just set everything right. And he's been doing these two things. Casting out demons and healing the sick and preaching about the kingdom of God. He's been doing that as he moves along. And now you're, you're seeing just a, a quick shift in what's going on. He's now drawn the 12, his closest disciples, to him. And he's given them authority to do exactly the same thing that he's been doing. He's given them authority to do that, and he's having them just go out and preach. So they're just getting a little more work done, uh, since instead it's just one man doing those signs and preaching about the kingdom. It's now 12, and Jesus, they're going out two by two. Um, and it's interesting, right? The way that he sends them out, it's not like, hey, get your bag and a tent 
and a bunch of stuff in case things happen and it doesn't go well. At least you got a little money. You can call me and I'll come pick you up or something. Like he's, he actually purposefully sends them out with no money, nothing to provide for themselves with. And he says to them, uh, so let's just unpack those little bits so you can kind of feel what he's saying. Um, don't bring any bread with you. Don't bring a bag with you. Don't bring any money in their belt. So that's obvious. But he says, so wear sandals. He doesn't want them walking very far at one time. So he doesn't want them having heavy duty shoes on. He's saying, just kind of wear your sandals that you wear every day. But what he's saying to them is you're not going, you're not traveling really far. You're going place to place to place, right? Um, and then he says, don't wear two tunics. Uh, just wear one tunic. And the idea there is people would wear two tunics in case they were traveling and they didn't have a place to stay well they could cover up and keep warm with a second tunic and what he's saying is no 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 I'm forcing you to be dependent upon the people that you're going to preach the gospel to I'm forcing you to be dependent because if they brought provisions for themselves they could go if they weren't accepted they kind of camp out and everything would be fine but what he's saying is I'm making you dependent upon me I'm upon the provision of my father in what you're about to go and do and then if you get to a place and they receive you, if you start healing the sick and casting out demons and those people receive you and receive the message that you are saying about me, stay with them. The idea there being if a richer, wealthier person comes along, you're, you're not to use the power that you've been given, the authority that you've been given to elevate your status. The first fertile soil that you come upon Stay there, let them provide for your needs as you preach about the kingdom and then when it's no longer right for you to stay, you move on. He's just saying there's dependence, right? Um, it's really nothing more than that. A forced dependence upon Jesus as they go out and a forced dependence upon the people that they're gonna preach to. Um, so, I wanna say a bit there about the end part. It says that they anoint people with oil and they heal them uh, and then they cast out a bunch of unclean spirits. Uh, what you need to see there about the message that's being preached is that the symptoms of sin, sickness, and demonic oppression, spiritual oppression, um, these are the symptoms of sin. And those symptoms, they're ultimately going to be put to rest when the age to come happens. So basically what Jesus has been doing and what the disciples are doing is they're just kind of manifesting in small ways what the kingdom will be like they're manifesting in small ways and revealing what it's going to be like when Jesus actually does reign in full and completely reigns and rules the world and is recreated. They're just kind of like giving little sprinkles and little hints of that. It's a sign of the age to come. The authority over the unclean spirits and the authority over sickness is just this little bit of what the age to come is going to be like when in Revelation 21, Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, they come to the earth. And what do they do? Wipe away the tear from every eye. They heal every sickness. They heal every disease. There is no more pain. There's no more crying. There's no more tears. The old things pass away and the new things come. The end of the story, right? And so, basically what they're doing is they're just performing these signs that validate the kingdom to come, validate the king, and validate the king's message. So, question. Uh, let's hash out a question. Let's imagine for a moment that you have authority over diseases. You could tell diseases to leave and they would leave. You could heal sick people. You could heal cancer. Imagine that for a moment. And you can talk to spiritual beings and tell them to stop giving your friends nightmares. 
Stop making your friends overrun with anxiety. You can, you can literally talk to demons and they'll leave. Let's imagine that for a second. How would society react to you if you could do those things? Come on, I'm really asking a question. Ooh, ooh. You know, I loved X-Men growing up on account of this whole, ooh. You, okay, tell me what you mean. Come on, come on. Okay. Oh, I'm all about it. I used to have dreams as a child. The most vivid dreams I had was that, like, I had Wolverine claws. And I, I wasn't Wolverine. It was me with Wolverine claws. And I woke up one morning, and I sat on the edge of my bed. And the dream was so vivid. I woke up, like, so excited. Sorry, we're just going to do this. I woke up so excited that, like, in my dream, I had been given Wolverine claws. And I woke up like, yes, sweet. And then I, I tried to make them, right, come out. And I was immediately like brought down to the depths of despair. As I realized this in fact was a dream. I do not have Wolverine claws. Um, I mean, I was, pit- I was pissed. Uh, I was so upset. And then I leveled out and then I realized, okay, you never had them to begin with. Easy come, easy go. You just need to let it go. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. Okay. Um, okay, another answer. How might society react to you if you could heal diseases, cast out demons? How would, they, how would people react to you? Like, think about walking in your class. A girl is super sick. She's about to take a, like, um, I don't know, her midterm, and she's just so sick, and she's like, I got to leave. I'm going to fail this tech in, uh, test, and I just don't feel good. I wasn't able to study because I just, I had taking medicine, I passed out, and you're like, no, it's cool, don't worry, be healed, in Jesus' name. Like, how would people respond to you? Okay, be accepted, everybody. Okay, they want to take a, oh, that's true, that happens, mm-hmm, big business. What's that? Okay, yeah, yeah, that happens in Acts as well, I think, Paul. Skepticism, you think? Okay. Anything else crosses your mind? Huh? They'd be uncomfortable? They'd be like, ugh. This guy's weird. I feel you. Okay. Ooh, okay. All right. Okay, so what I want you to see in, in the way that Mark has written this part out, he's telling us the story about the apostles. And he's going to tell us a completely different story. And then he's going to come back and talk about the apostles again. Um, and when me and Roman were talking about this, he gave me a really fancy word that explains that sort of structure within the text. And then I was talking to Kelly Lewis, and she said, oh, it's just a story sandwich. And I was like, I like that way better. It's a story sandwich. Apostles leaving, apostles returning the story of John the Baptist in the middle. And what you're supposed to do is understand that the story of John the Baptist is related to the story of the apostles because it's telling you something about the story of the apostles. It's revealing something more deeply about those apostles as they're sent out. It's revealing something more deeply about Jesus. And so what you're supposed to do is read those stories together because they inform each other. So I want to read the story about John the Baptist and then I want to unpack that a little bit. Keep it in mind that this is a story sandwich, okay? 
So King Herod heard of this, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. This is his sister-in-law, Herodias. Uh, Because he had married her. So Herod's a little creepy. He married his sister-in-law. I don't know how Philip felt about it. Maybe he was happy to get rid of her. I don't know. It's weird already. For John had been saying to Herod, this is John the Baptist, has been telling Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias, the sister-in-law, had a grudge against John the Baptist and wanted to put him to death. But she could not because Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. There's a whole other sermon there. We're not going to even go into it. But you see what's going on. John the Baptist calling out Herod because Herod married his, sis, his brother's wife. John the Baptist saying, you can't do that, bro. So Herodias has Herod put him in jail. She wants to kill him. And Herod's like, no, 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 no. But he goes and talks to him. And everything he says, he listens to him. It troubles him. But he believes him. But it troubles him. But he doesn't change. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king, which is Herod, said to the girl who danced, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and she said to her mother, Herodias, for what should I ask? And Herodias said, ask for the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went, he beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body, and they laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Do you see the story sandwich? The apostles return, and we get this long story about John the Baptist, who Jesus said, there's no one born among women greater than John the Baptist. That's what Jesus said of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is the one, cousin of Jesus, um, who is preaching about Jesus before Jesus comes on the scene. He's preaching about the coming kingdom. A lot of people thought John the Baptist might even be Messiah, but he consistently shrugged that off. So we're getting this story, and it's so weird in its placement. 
It's so weird that this is what's being said. Uh, and I'm just going to cut to the chase pretty quickly because we don't have enough time uh, to slowly get there. Yeah, you didn't think I could cut to the chase, Emily Brown. Yeah, I can, okay? I'm going to get through this. What's being said, the way that they want you to understand what's going on with apostles and John the Baptist is this. They want you to see the story of John the Baptist, a faithful man. Jesus said, there's no one born among women greater than him, faithful to what the Lord had gave him to do. And what was the result of doing what God put in front of him to do well and faithfully? What was the result? The result of that, his head was cut off and put on a platter to please a skanky woman whose daughter danced provocatively for a king and his nobles. That's how the faithful man was treated. That's what happened. And what Mark wants to show you is a couple things. One, that that is the road that Messiah Jesus is on. He is going to be faithful to all that the Father has for him to do. And how that's going to be received by society is a lot like what you said. Society is going to see what's going on and they're going to crucify Jesus. In the same way that John the Baptist was put to death by those in power, Jesus will be put to death by those in power. In the same way that John the Baptist was faithful and that was the result, so so Jesus will be faithful and that will be the result. And then what they want you to see about the apostles is that as the apostles are faithful to do what the Father has put in front of them to do, they will share likewise a similar fate. All but one of the apostles are put to death for the testimony about Jesus. And the one who isn't is exiled. The only one. So that's what they're trying to telegraph to you in that story. That's what they're trying to, that's what Mark is trying to say to you in that story about John the Baptist. Okay. One more question. One more question. If Jesus can heal the sick and cast out demons and can deputize people to heal the sick and cast out demons and the age to come culminates with no more sickness and no more demons, why doesn't he just deputize like a thousand people, let them comb the face of the earth, cast out all the demons, heal all the sickness, here comes the kingdom of God, no cross. Like, what, as I was reading, the why, like, why, if he can just deputize people, like, if he can just say, oh, you've got authority now, why don't you go do that? Why didn't you just get 10,000 people? Why doesn't he get 100,000 people? Why doesn't all these people that are following him around, why doesn't he just grab them and say, you, 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 okay, you can cast out demons and you, you, you can heal the sick. Now just go and do that. Why is the fate of Jesus the same as the fate of John the Baptist? Why does Jesus have to go to this cross? Why does he have to submit himself to corrupt rulers in the way that John the Baptist submitted himself to corrupt rulers and was killed? Why does Jesus have to submit himself to corrupt rulers and be crucified? That's the question. That's a real question. Sorry. Sometimes they're hypothetical. Sometimes they're not. I know you get confused. 
Why? Come on, okay. 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 Appreciate. Okay. Tell me about relationships. Okay, what you have to see is the sickness, the death, corrupt spiritual rulers executing their will on the earth. That's all symptomatic. That's all symptoms of the problem. The problem itself being sin, like Roberto Palomino says, has separated us from God. So hash this out with me for a moment. Jesus goes to the cross because he wants to forgive sins, because he wants to reconcile and reunite humanity with himself. He wants to not just cure the symptoms, he wants to not just get rid of the pain, he wants to not just get rid of the oppression, he also wants to reconcile and draw back humans into relationship with himself. So, so, so God the Father is more concerned with you being near to him than he is with all of the sickness and all of the death and all of the demonic oppression on the earth. He's more, he would rather you be near to him. He's more concerned with that than the symptoms. He's concerned with the sickness itself. Because it would have been Jesus, it would have been easier for Jesus to not submit himself to rulers. It would have been easier for Jesus to not have nails through his hands and his feet to suffocate on his own blood. It would be much easier for God to not have to go through all that. But the reason he does is because he wants to cure the problem and the real effect of the problem, which is separation. Like we have to go deeper into that. We have to go deeper into that. Um... When I was in college here, I, I, I was wringing my hands, praying, and asking God, "What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do?" After I met Lauren, my wife, or after I met Lauren and we were dating, I was wringing my hands, "What do you want me to do? Do you want me to marry her or not? Is she the person you have for me?" Just wring my hands over it. Ultimately, we got married. It's beautiful, good thing. We got married a year before I graduated wringing my hands over it. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? I, do you want me to go to seminary? you want me to not go to seminary? you want me to stay here? you want me to not stay here? Ultimately, he had me stay here. He opened his plan. He made it obvious what it was. Uh, about a year ago, I was driving like a 1989 blue Chevy. It had like 250,000 miles on it. I really wanted a new truck, and I'm like wringing my hands like, God, I want a new truck. I just want a new truck. I like, can I get a new, I like wringing my hands over a truck, you know? So I went and bought this like 2011 F-150, real nice platinum leather. Felt guilty for like two weeks. And then I started wringing my hands. My house is starting to feel cramped with two boys and another baby on the way. God, I want to add on to the house. I want to add on to the house. I want to add on to the house. For like a year and a half, we're going through the process of trying to make that happen. Finally happens. It's in construction now. I'm super excited. And you know what I find myself wringing my hands over now? Through seeing God be faithful 
I've seen him give me good things. Great wife, kids, house, F-150. <laughs> you know what I pray for lately? I pray that I would get like five minutes with Jesus to come into a room. Like I'll, 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 I'll sit in my chair and pray and all I'm asking is, like, could I get like five minutes with you? Like, if, I could, if you could just come in the room for like five minutes, Jesus, and I could like see your face and I could ask you like 15 questions and have you just like look back at me and kind of laugh because they're silly. Like if I could just, if I could just get a few minutes, if I could just talk to you. I, I want more than anything in my life now, more than all the good things that God's given me, I want more than anything to get a few minutes to see the king like face to face. I, I, I don't understand it. I want to ask him if I'm doing okay at work. I want to ask him if I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I make sourdough bread and I grind my own wheat and I mix it and I want to make him a slice of toast. I, I want to. And I want to know what he thinks of it. I want to eat it with him. And I want to know, like, would you have put more rye in there I want time with him. Like he's an actual physical being. Not some idea in my head that governs my actions and makes me feel guilty when I do something I shouldn't do. I want to see the compassion in his eyes. When I ask him if I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. If I, when I ask him if I'm doing the right thing. I want to see the compassion in his eyes. And the smile on his face. And as much as I want to see Jesus, as much as I want time with him lately, this, was, this wasn't my prayer for most of my Christian life. It's just been like within the last three months. I don't know if life's getting harder, what it is. As much as I want to see his face and talk to him for like just a few minutes, he wants to be with me infinitely more than that. And he wants to be with you infinitely more than you will ever want to be with him. So last night I put on Jumanji. I got my two boys, right? Like almost three and one and a half. And I like make the popcorn and put M&M's in it because you put M&M's in popcorn. And I, I, I do all that because I want for like just a moment for Sammy to sit on my left and Marshall to sit on my right and to like grab them and Marshall to like lean up against me I want that with them more than they could ever, ever, ever want that with me. 
It's not that God is more enjoyable. It's not that God is more enjoyable than you. It's that God has a greater capacity to enjoy you than you have to enjoy him. His ability to enjoy your presence, to desire to be with you, to desire to speak life into you. He has more desire to be with you than you will ever have to be with him in the same way that I have more desire to be with my children than they have to be with me. Like, I would go through all that trouble to get five, because the, the kids don't watch the movie. They, like, jump on the couch the whole time, and they're, like, running around, and they're, like, like just like throwing the popcorn on the floor so they can get to the M&Ms. And I'm like, just stop, stop, stop. And then there's like this moment. It's just a moment where they chill out. The movie captures them and they like lean into me. And I'm like, yes, yes, that's what I wanted. This is what I wanted. I enjoy them and desire to be with them so much more than they'll ever desire to be with me. And our Father desires to be with you more than you will ever desire to be with him, ever. That's why he sent Jesus, his son. He's showing you how much he desires you not because you're worthy or valuable or any of those things because he is love he is love and he desires to lavish that onto you in a way that you can't possibly comprehend in a way that drowns out every fear of tomorrow in a way that drowns out every anxiety about every test, every anxiety about every relationship, in a way that drowns out every fear about your future, in a way that drowns out absolutely everything else. Our Father desires, desires, desires to be near to you. That's why Revelation 21 culminates the way that it culminates. It doesn't just say he wipes away every tear, and he throws Satan into hell. What it says is that heaven comes to earth and God speaks and he says, I'll be with my people. My people will be with me and I will be with them as their God and I will wipe away every tear. I don't think we allow ourselves to sit in the depth and the beauty of God's desire to lavish love on his people. And if we would, it would literally change the course of our days. It would absolutely change the course of our days. And so we have to see in the path of John the Baptist and in the path of Jesus Christ and ultimately the path of the apostles. It's all revolving around God's desire to do away with the thing that separates us from him and ultimately to do away with the thing 
that is corrupting the earth because of our separation from him. And what I want you to see is the other reason that story is set up the way it is because it's showing you not only will faithfulness result in this for Jesus, faithfulness result in this for John the Baptist, faithfulness result in this for the apostles, faithfulness in your life. You might not end up on a cross. You might not end up with your head on a platter but you may very well be rejected by people who love you or rejected by people that you love, rejected by people that you want to please, rejected by people that you find attractive. You might be rejected by the people that you don't want to be rejected by. What he's saying is faithfulness to him is a sort of life that is filled with sorrow, filled with joy, filled with difficulty, filled with ease, but filled with meaning because you're doing it with him for his purposes to bring about the recreation of the earth in its fullness. Before I became a believer, I became a believer at 22. Um, I had a lot of good times with my friends. Um, Went to a lot of sweet places. Got into a ton of trouble. Did a lot of drugs. I had fun. And since I've become a believer, I've had more sorrow than I've ever had in my life. I've seen people that I've walked with for two years and tried to disciple walk away from me. I've seen people submit to sins that are destroying them. And at the same time, I've had more joy in my life than I've ever seen. I've seen people who are stuck in bondage and anxiety and depression, demonic oppression, completely freed and released. I've seen people transformed in a short amount of time as they submit their life to Jesus. That's what the path of Jesus is going to be like if you would submit yourself and embrace that path. The most meaningful, beautiful, joyful experience you've ever had in your life and potentially the most sorrow you've ever had in your life. And it's the most beautiful thing you could ever walk in. It's the most beautiful thing you could ever enjoy. It's the most meaningful thing you could experience as a human. Ever. And that's much of what's trying to be telegraphed by that story sandwich. Um, <laughs> <laughs>